one in three men and one in four women admit to having an affair at some point during their lifetime. And actually those statistics vary greatly. They're probably even higher than that because most people when surveyed really don't like to admit to that. But you know, looking back, very few people when they go to their wedding day ever think about the idea of being unfaithful to their spouse. The idea while they're standing there in front of an altar in a church looking each other in the eyes, the idea of them ever being unfaithful to that person probably is preposterous to them. And yet, just outside the doors of that church is lurking temptation that in the end, 50% of those marriages will struggle with and fail. 50% of all marriages end in divorce. And if it's not infidelity that causes it to end in divorce, whatever the reason is, it ends in heartache and pain and hurt and regret that some people wonder if they'll ever be able to recover from. Statistics would say that those who attend church are just as at risk as those who don't attend church. So obviously it would make a lot of sense for us to take a very proactive approach to this. If there are preventative measures that we can take, we want to do that, don't we? And often the way we do that is by making decisions one day at a time. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to talk about how to affair-proof your marriage. Now, this isn't going to be about guilt. Right up front, I want to say it. We're not trying to put anybody on a guilt trip because we know it is a reality. And we're not trying to make anyone feel uncomfortable. But I think we would all agree that if we can evaluate and if we can change some things and we can grow in this area, not only will we be better, but we can make our marriages better. In fact, when we get near the end of this morning, I'm going to give you some steps you can take to rebuild your marriage if an affair has taken place. But God wants our marriages not just to exist, not just to survive. He wants them to thrive. So, again, I think we would all agree, if we can catch this up front, we'll be a whole lot better off, won't we? So, place I want to start this morning, I want to give you four myths about adultery. Here's the first one. Adultery is about sex. Now, Because sex is involved, many times we assume that that's the issue. And honestly, for some, that is what it's about. But many times, when you look at what's going on and you look below the surface, you find that there were other motivations, there were other issues involved. For example, unmet needs is one of the greatest causes of adultery. In just a little bit, I'm going to give you five primary needs of both men and women. Now, this isn't going to be about blaming our spouse as if they're not meeting our needs, but we do have to be aware of what each other's needs are. Rarely can any spouse meet all of our needs, nor can we expect our spouse to meet all of our needs. But we do have to look deep inside ourselves and say, what is behind my unmet needs? Is there something going on here from my past? Is there an internal struggle that I need to address? And finding the answers to that can help us understand what caused it. And often, it takes a third person, even a wise counselor, to help us see what we can't see ourselves. So that's one myth. Here's another myth about adultery. Adultery is therapeutic. The idea that somehow an affair will enhance your life or marriage is so far from the truth. 
What it does bring is drama and pain and heartache for everybody involved. A third myth is this, that adultery is harmless. Now, movies often portray it this way because we never see the consequences in movies. Often it's portrayed as right and beautiful if people are, you know, supposedly passionately in love with each other, but reality isn't quite the same. Adultery shatters trust, intimacy, self-esteem, not to mention high-risk behavior, and it pays a high emotional cost because it will affect the marriage, often even with devastating results for kids. Even if it's never found out by the spouse, the marriage still pays a high price because your marriage can never become what God intended it because secrecy prohibits intimacy. And then another myth is this, that adultery has to end in divorce. A marriage pays a high price when infidelity is present. Many couples do divorce after one of them has had an affair. The good news is it doesn't have to end that way. Many can stay together, but it's not just about staying together. It's not just about existing. It's about finding a path to deeper commitment and trust and intimacy. And that can happen, you know, with counseling, renewed mutual commitment to each other and working through the issues along with forgiveness. The success rate when it has happened is remarkably high. And if you ask most couples who have successfully gone through a process of restoration after an affair, they will tell you that keeping the marriage together was worth it. Many even find that their marriage can be closer and be more fulfilling because they were forced to work through some of the deeper issues that already existed before the affair. Now here's what the Bible says. This is Hebrews 13 verse 4 in the Bible. It says, give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage, God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. Now, why would God say that? It's because God doesn't give us these type of things. He doesn't say these kind of things to us to restrict us, but to enhance our lives. God operates out of loves. So when you think he is forbidding you, instead think this way. Forbiddance leads to fulfillment. Guidelines are for our good. You know the people who don't even follow the Bible agree on this? Um, one USA Today CNN Gallup poll found out that 8 out of 10 Americans say that any type of sexual relationship with someone other than your spouse is wrong. And another 11% added that all, it's almost always wrong. So the overwhelming majority of Americans believe that it's wrong too. And yet, affairs still happen. So what can we do to prevent them? What I want to do, I want to give you three things that you can do to affair-proof your marriage. And here is the first. Affair-proof yourself. If we affair-proof ourselves, then theoretically we reduce the possibility of marital infidelity in our marriage by 50%, right? That's significant. And if our spouse does the same, then that reduces the chances of infidelity to just about zero. So let me ask you a question. Given the right circumstances and the right person, is it possible that you would have an affair? 
Not only do we have a responsibility to our spouse and to our kids, but when we say those marriage vows, we're pledging ourselves to faithfulness before God. Satan, though, is very subtle in his approach. And he doesn't tempt you by just overtly throwing a temptation your way. He works slowly. He works quietly. He begins to change your attitude. He begins to erode the marriage. Your circumstances begin to change. He puts you in compromising situations. You begin believing the lie that the grass is greener on the other side. Have you ever seen that cartoon about the two cows standing next to a fence? There's one on one side of the fence. There's one on the other side of the fence. And the one cow has his head through the fence and is eating grass on the other side of the fence. And the other cow has his head through the fence and he's eating grass on the other side of the fence. And of course, the caption is, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. That's not true though, is it? The grass is greener where we water. And an affair can begin with a comment, then a feeling of attraction. It can be followed by a look. The look is returned. Soon you're looking forward to being around this person. Then a touch, then more touches, then comments, thoughts, and feelings that are expressed that become inappropriate. And on and on it goes. It progresses. And eventually we can become blind to this process because what is happening is intoxicating to us, and it leads to a point of no return. And at that point, we're not thinking about consequences. We're not thinking about pain or heartache or damage that this can do. So given that, we have to take intentional steps to affair-proof ourselves. Let me show you how this can progress if we don't. To give you an example, I want to show you a person from the Bible this person in the Bible is called the man after God's own heart. We're talking about King David of Israel. And if it can happen to him, it can happen to any of us. Let me read you his story. This is 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'll read the first five verses. Here's the story, how it goes. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. When she came to the palace, he slept with her. Later, Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant. She sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Now, I don't know if you noticed as I read this story, but there is a progression that takes place here. First, though, understand that David was not on anybody's top ten list of most guys likely to have an affair. As we said, this is the guy who was called the man after God's own heart. He was a deeply passionate man about his relationship with God. He loved God with all his heart. And I don't think this, it was David's intentions when he started to end up where he ended up. I mean, if you were to ask David, say, a year earlier, maybe six months earlier, maybe a month earlier, if he thought he would sleep with another man's wife, I think his response would have been, no way, not a chance. 
He was probably in his 50s when this happened. You don't really get a sense that it was premeditated, and yet you can still see several factors that were present. And you can see, as you read the story, that he had opportunities along the way to stop this, but he didn't. So let me show you this progression. Okay, the first thing is, we read this in verse 1, he stayed. What we mean by that is, he stayed home. He was not where he was supposed to be. He was, out, he was supposed to be out with his buddies, his soldiers, because we read when kings normally go to war. So actually what the writer is doing here, he's dropping hints to us. He's letting us see this progression that's taking place. David was not where he was supposed to be. He put himself in a compromising and a vulnerable situation. Second step we see is this, in verse 2, he saw. It begins with attraction of some type. Maybe it's physical, like was the case here with David. Sometimes it's emotional, it's compatibility, time spent together, unmet needs that draw two people closer together. David still could have shut this down at any point. He didn't. It led to the next step. The third step, verse 3, is he sent. It's still not too late, but he refused to turn back. He's acting now. By, by the way, I don't know if you noticed this, but he was actually warned even as he's acting on this, he was warned. When he was asked who this woman was, the reply included, this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. It reaches a point where we quit listening to others. It's a point where we rationalize or just don't care anymore about consequences. Next step, verse 4, he sinned. In other words, he slept with another man's wife. In the fifth step, verse 5, he suffered the consequences. Most of the time when we give in to temptation, we have just completely ignored reality and consequences. You know, as one pastor put it, the pain of the consequences always surpasses the pleasure of the sin. So how do we defeat temptation, especially this temptation, which is so strong? Let me give you some practical steps to take. Again, this will help you a fair proof yourself. And I'm not going to take the time to read all the Bible references I've listed. There are many in your notes here. Um, I would encourage you maybe to look them up on your own even this afternoon, so I'll just go through these quickly. But here are some steps you can take. The first one is realize your vulnerability. In other words, it can happen to any of us. Next, reveal your struggle. Talk with someone, but someone who's safe to talk with, a wise, mature friend, someone of the same sex. Then, raise some checkpoints. So the next step. In other words, do you have accountability? Does your spouse have complete access to your phone, to your computer? Do you have some policies that you use if you take business trips? You know, we have a code of ethics here at the church that we have all our pastors sign when they come on board, when they're employed. And in that code of ethics, we have some very clear policies on how we will and how we will not interact with the opposite sex. Things like, we won't ever be alone with someone of the opposite sex, including on church property. Why? Because we want to put some checkpoints in place for ourselves. And finally, refocus your thoughts. I do want to take the time to read this verse. It's Philippians 4, 8. Because how you think determines how you feel, and how you feel determines how you act. Let me repeat that to make sure you got that. How you think determines how you feel, and how you feel will determine how you act. So the battle is initially won or lost in your mind. And here's what it says, Philippians 4.8. 
And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. So a fair proof, yourself. That's the first step. Here's the next step, the second step, and it's this. A fair proof, your spouse. Now, I'm not suggesting you go out and hire a private detective. Um, and I definitely don't recommend trying to control or manipulate them. That usually just drives them further away. But what I want to do is give you two positive suggestions that you can put in place to help a fair proof your spouse. Here's the first one. Make your relationship with God your first priority, then your spouse second. Now, I know that sounds a little bit strange, so hear me out on this. When we're talking about making your spouse in second place, even though that seems out of order, here's why we do that. When you make your relationship with God first, it'll make your relationship with your spouse better. You become a more loving, a more patient person, more gentle. Furthermore, God wants you to have a marriage that will last a lifetime. And he's in your corner on this one. Your spouse is still a priority. Just prioritize your relationship with God first. So take intentional steps to cultivate the marriage. And you can do that. Treat your spouse with respect. Communicate with them. Have fun with them. So the next time someone or something comes along interesting, it comes your way, your spouse will be thinking, I'd be crazy to jeopardize what I already have. Even if he's better looking or richer or appears more attractive for some other reason, will he be as concerned about my well-being as my spouse would be? Will he love me like my spouse does? Will he be as good a father or mother to our kids? And here's the second way to affair-proof your spouse. It's this, put your spouse's needs above your own. Remember, we said you can't meet all your spouse's needs. Only God can do that. But you can put their interests above your own. And the best way to make your marriage strong is for both of you to mutually commit to meeting the needs of each other. That's why we read in a verse like Ephesians 5.33 in the Bible, it says, so again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And what are those needs that we have in a marriage relationship? In his book, His Needs, Her Needs, subtitled Building in a Fair-Proof Marriage, Dr. Willard Harley lists five basic needs of both men and women. Not surprisingly, they're different. Now, obviously, these are some generalizations, and there can be exceptions, and every season of life can have an impact on those needs. But in general, here's what they are. First, for women. Affection is first. Then conversation. Honesty and openness. Financial commitment. And family commitment. Those are the five basic needs that women have in a marriage relationship. So what are those for men? Not surprisingly, the first one is sexual fulfillment. Next, recreational companionship. Next, an attractive spouse. And this doesn't mean to be perfect or a model, it just means to be attractive. 
Next, domestic support. And finally, admiration. Now those two lists are quite different, aren't they? But knowing our, the needs of our spouse are different, and putting the other person's needs above our own is a way to a fair proof our spouse. Okay, finally, a third thing we can do is this. A fair proof your lifestyle. When we take the vows on our wedding day, we intend to keep them, don't we? Like we said earlier. Sometimes people go into a fair, an affair knowing what they're doing. Other times it's because we've just become vulnerable to situations or we end up in vulnerable situations. And we can easily put in place some common sense guidelines which will help affair-proof our lifestyles. I've always found this quote from a pastor's name's Craig Groeschel to be so simple but so profound. Here's what he says. Why resist the temptation tomorrow if I have the power to eliminate it today? Decisions about remaining faithful to your spouse are daily decisions. Decisions that you can make today that will help you keep that commitment tomorrow. So if we want to remain faithful to our spouse, then we make a decision today that will keep us out of a vulnerable, tempting situation tomorrow. Statistics bear out that extramarital affairs happen between usually close personal friends or co-workers. Other than one night stands, that's often the arena in which they occur. So what kind of guidelines, what kind of safeguards can we put in place in those environments? Well, it's never wise to spend time with someone of the opposite sex, married or single, unless your spouse is present. Be aware of that in the workplace. You know, according to one leading magazine, I quote, the business atmosphere itself fosters the building of romance. Now, why is that? You know, if you think about it, in a work environment, people dress for success. Some travel, so there's a lack of accountability there. We show our best side at work and our worst side at home. Sometimes we end up spending more time with people at work than we even do our spouse, and so on. So that kind of environment makes us vulnerable. This is a true story. Kelly married right out of high school and didn't go to work until she was in her 30s. She took a job to help clear up some bills they had. She discovered that she liked what she was doing. She had a knack for computers. Soon she had worked her way up. She was making as much money as her husband. She was spending less time at home. And she began working with a guy by the name of John. They became emotionally attached. She felt like she had so much more in common with John than she did her own husband. She said, I felt like a fairy tale princess who had to go back to the dungeon every night. So I tried to fake like my marriage was okay, but I just couldn't resist spending time with John. You see where this is headed? So a fair proof your lifestyle. So for example, I won't have lunch with a lady alone. I won't ride in a car alone with a lady, unless of course it's my family. I won't meet a lady alone here at the church unless there's someone nearby, even in the office area. And these policies are in place for all of our staff. 
My spouse is welcome to look at my emails, my phone, my computer, my calendar, anytime she wants to. Because why would I resist the temptation tomorrow that I can eliminate today? What if you've already messed up in this area? Can a marriage survive and even be rebuilt if unfaithfulness has occurred? Yes, it can, and it happens. But there are some common threads in marriages that are restored. And we're not going to have time to go into a lot of detail about this, but let me mention to you some of the common ingredients that happen in those marriages that are successfully restored. I'll go quickly on this. The first one is honesty. Complete honesty. Full disclosure. It has to happen. Why? Because the second ingredient is trust. And trust can only be reestablished when there is complete honesty. Third, genuine remorse. Repentance. And repentance just means a change of heart that results in action. Fourth, time. Listen closely. Trust can be broken in a moment. It takes months and years to rebuild trust. Trust is restored when someone is completely honest and trustworthy and does that over time. Okay, the fifth one is forgiveness. The spouses have to forgive each other. They have to let it go. They have to release their right to get even and hold that against the other person. And finally, renewal of commitment. That just means rugged, courageous, non-negotiable, mutual commitment. It's when someone says, you know what, I'm in this marriage come hell or high water. That requires endurance, character, humility, and hard work. But you know, if you think about it, we have a God who's done that for us, and He's done that for us time and time again, haven't we? I mean, we've been unfaithful to Him, but He's there to give us a second chance to forgive us, and He renews His commitment to us every time we do that. In fact, God's commitment to us is so strong that we actually read these words in the Bible from God to us. He says, I will never leave you or abandon you. There is hope. You know, this is a pretty heavy topic, but we can end today with hope. And the reason we can end with hope is because that's at the core message of Christianity. We call the core message of Christianity the gospel. The Bible says that if someone accepts Christ into their life, they become a new person. The old is gone, and a new life has begun. You know, wow. I mean, that, that's also true of marriages as well. God specializes in giving us the capacity to forgive because He forgave us. God specializes in giving us hope in situations that look hopeless. God specializes in giving us a fresh start. So it's not hopeless. And the message of the gospel is that if you have not yet invited Jesus into your life, to become part of your life, to surrender your life to Him, you can do that even today. And as an initial step, you'll find forgiveness, hope, and a fresh start from God. In fact, if you would like, you can surrender your life to Him today, in your heart right now, even as I close in prayer. Let's pray.